Hello and welcome to the Moving Curve. I'm Rukmini, a data journalist based in Chennai. Two nights a week on this mini cast, I consider one question around the novel coronavirus epidemic in India. Tonight I'm considering this one. Did we go too far with zero surveys? It's one year and 51 days since the first novel coronavirus case in India and we are reporting 11,599,208 cases with 159,794 deaths. Dr. Anup Malani is a professor at the University of Chicago's Law School and the University's Pritzker School of Medicine and is a visiting senior fellow at IDFC Institute, an economic development-focused think tank in Mumbai. Dr. Malani has been leading a series of COVID-19 zero surveys in cities and states across India with IDFC. Based on the seroprevalence data, IDFC has advised state governments on policies to control the spread of the disease and now on vaccine allocations. I had a long conversation with Dr. Malani about innovations in collecting COVID-19 data in India, the limits of zero surveys, and how really to think about herd immunity, a question that's more important now than it ever was. My first question to Dr. Malani was about zero surveys and how IDFC pulled off the logistics of doing so many of them, multiple rounds in Mumbai, then in Karnataka and Tamil Nadu, as well as some other states. So first thing is I want to say India is actually remarkable. If you were to list down countries by the number of zero surveys that they did or just population level surveys, India would be close to the top of that list. And if you adjusted by income and healthcare capacity, I think India probably outperformed most governments other than some in East Asia, maybe. Okay. Right. So kudos to India. A lot of different organizations have done a lot of different zero surveys. And it doesn't stop with zero surveys. There's prevalence surveys. There's a lot of scientific research that's going on. There are surveys of what's happening to uh, incomes. Um, it's remarkable. Um, so after we finish blaming a bunch of people, we should actually just say there are ways in which India was quite successful. Now, IDFC, I think, was particularly remarkable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the things that IDFC did that was very important is they realized that you needed to work with government and you need to adapt to the circumstance and that speed was key. So what IDFC did, I think, was important was immediately identify governments that were willing to allow or do zero surveys to adapt to their particular public policy needs. Like if they had a specific question that the government official wanted, they would tailor it around that. Mm-hmm. IDFC worked to get funding, typically through nonprofits, NGOs in India, or sometimes the government directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and because uh, uh, we had come together to assemble this private task force to try to help the government respond uh, once lockdown was declared, that also included a bunch of labs. So we had access to a lot of labs. So you had all the network parts. So, for example, in Mumbai, we were able to work directly with the BMC. Uh, to get uh, approvals and support. Uh, We work with Kasturba um, uh, and TIFR uh, to get the necessary scientists together to be able to implement this policy, implement the CIRA survey. Uh, And we worked on the design with them because we knew that slums were going to be particularly at risk. Okay, so that was Mumbai. Um, Pune, I think, did it independently. I think it was remarkable and very fast. I also want to give credit to Andhra Pradesh. We've been working with Andhra Pradesh, but Andhra Pradesh did implement a four, I believe, four district survey of urban and rural. That was very good too. Um, uh, around that time, you also had Bihar doing a survey of migrants, random testing of migrants. It wasn't antibody, but it was uh, RT-PCR. That was actually remarkable. We've been working with Bihar, but that's uh, on Bihar for taking that initiative. 
Then in Karnataka, we found another opportunity uh, with with Pankaj Pandey uh, uh, and others uh, in the in the in the health ministry there. Uh, they wanted it. They were open to doing a survey throughout Karnataka that really gave us a sense of what was going on in rural India. Uh, so we had IDSC collaborated with CMIE, which provided the sample, the Karnataka government, and uh, a number of local labs like uh, uh, Exciton uh, and, and uh, uh, MMG. Um, that happened in Karnataka. We repeat, once you had those two successes, then we were able to get more requests from state governments. So Tamil Nadu worked the same way, our repeat survey in Bangalore the same way. But the thing is that that IDFC just adapted to the circumstances and just acted quickly, knowing that it was clear and and led under the rubric of the state. The state really was important in these contexts. So that's how we were able to accomplish this much. The thing that we would add on top of that that was important was plugging all these pieces of information together to be able to do things like advise states on how to do suppression uh, and and correlate that with uh, official data plus the seroprevalence. And now we're doing vaccine allocations, again, using the seroprevalence. We're not just gathering data, but we're trying to guide policy based on that data. When I spoke to Dr. Malani, cases had begun to rise again in Mumbai and in Maharashtra. And as you know now, it's clear that that was the beginning of this second wave that we appear to be in the middle of now. And as I said in the last episode, I have been grappling with the question of how this could be. How could cities like Mumbai and Pune that were hit so hard and had such high seroprevalence early on see another wave? And this is where I've been trying to understand if seroservays are implicated too. The city of Manaus is on the edge of the Amazon rainforest in northwest Brazil and it has become the epicenter of discussions around herd immunity. Manaus experienced a COVID-19 surge that peaked by April 2020 and by October 2020, analyses from the SERA of blood donors in the city had led researchers to believe that 76% of the city's population had been infected. Herd immunity, it appeared, was imminent. Yet in January 2021, the city saw a resurgence, prompting the investigators of its first study to re-examine the causes of the new surge. They observed that there could be at least four reasons for this in a study that they published in the Lancet Medical Journal in January this year, including reinfections and new variants. But they also acknowledged that the attack rate of the virus could have been overestimated during the first wave in Manaus on account of some mathematical and epidemiological assumptions that could have contained errors. This has led me to question my own certainties around Indian seroservays, and I asked Dr. Malani about it. Once we all got our heads around it and we figured out what these federal surveys were saying, um, is is there a sense that uh, maybe some of the lessons from it were taken uh, too solidly? So, you know, when I look at the Manaus sort of example and uh, think back now about what's happening in some of the Indian cities as well, it seems to me that seroprevalence prevalence was taken as a undisputed fact rather than as something that, you know, you know, antibody decay became a sort of caveat which we didn't pay enough attention to and the path to herd immunity seemed very clear and direct. So, so, so you know, there's a lot of times through the pandemic, right from the beginning when, when there was modeling that I think uncertainty hasn't been paid enough attention to. So uh, with the Cero service, do you think that there was a bit of sort of over... Uh, I, don't, I mean, I wouldn't say overselling because I don't think anyone involved in it was overselling it, but a sort of uh, expectation 
that this was telling us more than it necessarily was? Um, so I, I completely agree with you, uh, but there are a number of reasons that you're right. One reason is the one that you pointed out, there's antibody decay. The implication of antibody decay is that seroprevalence will, now we know that the fraction of the population that's infected can only increase, okay? Uh, and as long as immunity is durable, the fraction of the population that's immune can only increase. But seroprevalence, because of antibody decay, measures what happened, say, in the last three months. So it can rise, but then as the as the um, a rate of infection declines, it'll it'll actually stay constant and maybe even decline. Right. And what right. that means is it's over time, it's more and more underestimating the amount of natural immunity that's in the population. That's that that I think you're exactly right about. Now there are ways to adjust for that. So there's statistical ways to adjust for that. Uh, there's also ways to to directly check for that. So in Bangalore right now, we're doing uh, uh, Anu Acharya is doing uh, uh, T cell assays. Uh, with Sinjin uh, to try to, to figure out the extent to which we're undercounting. So that's one way, and there's statistical ways. So that was, I think, one uh, aspect uh, um, that was important. A second one I think that you didn't stress that's also important is when we walked into this pandemic, we learned a lot from epidemiologists about uh, these things called compartmental models. And we thought, we also learned about this concept called herd immunity, and we took it a bit far. What we said was there's some threshold that once you hit it, the epidemic dies out. Everybody was talking about what is the herd immunity threshold? What's the attack rate? Things like that. Now, the difficulty was that when we started seeing these really high rates on seroprevalence, say Mumbai slums, yeah. you know, we 55%, immediately people said, oh, we're close to herd immunity. Things can relax. And, and the problem with that is that we don't actually know what the level of herd immunity is. It's a belief that we have, but it's something to be estimated. And the second thing, which is even more profound, is that herd immunity is not an absolute level. It depends on human behavior. So if you imagine that the world was interacting in the same way it was interacting in 2019 in Mumbai, the herd immunity threshold is gonna be higher than the herd immunity threshold if you're in the middle of a lockdown because everybody's kind of controlling their own behavior or someone even today where they know there's still a risk of the epidemic. So they're not quite back to interacting exactly in the same way as 2019. So the herd immunity threshold will rise as activity rises. So do I know that 55% was correct, even assuming that that was correct, that we were close to herd immunity? No, I had no idea what the threshold was. I knew that as activity rose, that threshold would keep increasing, okay? And it's because of that that I think we took seroprevalence too seriously. We didn't understand that this process was going on in the background. And does that mean that seroprevalence is not useful? No, it's very useful. First of all, if you have 55% in July in slums, and you have 15% in non-slums, it says you're doing a much better job of controlling the epidemic in non-slums than slums, and that you get rapid spread even during the lockdown for some reason uh, um, uh, during the pandemic. And we need to understand why, either to improve the lockdown or to understand maybe what the lockdown did is we reduced mobility, but then people got stuck in crowded housing and that spread the epidemic. I don't know the answers, stuff to learn about so that we can prepare for the next epidemic, but we can learn a lot from seroprevalence. It gives you a sense, like measuring your temperature, gives you a sense of what might be wrong. But again, you should be careful in interpretation. The Maharashtra numbers should make us question our assumptions about what seroservays were showing, including our assumptions about how much immunity the antibodies that were being picked up could really confer, how long-lasting this immunity might be, and how it might work against newer variants. By October and November last year, I think I felt I could see where the pandemic was going, what its end game was, so to speak. Once again, I find those assumptions challenged. The only way to know more will be through more data. 
more sero surveys more studies of the durability of the immunity conferred by antibodies more genomic surveillance and more lab studies of the efficacy of vaccine candidates against new variants thank you for listening this episode was edited by anand krishnamurthy the next time a special one year anniversary episode